So we are um, well into the season of Lent, which really used to mean something for those of you who are recovering Catholics, or like myself, uh, uh, still healing evangelical. Um, Lent, Lent is that period of time, the 40 days leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus in the Bible. Um, if you are in unity, you know we don't take that literal um, approach to what's in the Bible. So for us, really, it's that period of time leading up to the awakening. That's what the resurrection metaphysically represents, our awakening to the fullness of our spiritual and divine consciousness. So that being said, we know that our awakening is not a fixed point in time in our lives. We awaken to new levels, awareness of our divinity every year, every month, every week, maybe every hour, maybe every five minutes. I don't know. It all depends on what your journey looks like. So, so, so this is what that 40 days represents. And, and you, this may not be new news to some of you, but that number 40 represents just the time it takes right? A lot of 40 periods in the Bible. So whatever time it takes is whatever time it takes. But during this time, if you do read the Gospels, this is what I like to call like Jesus's greatest hits, right? There's a lot of great stories in the Bible during this time in the New Testament about Jesus's life and some of his most well-known sayings. So while we are in the spirit of Lent, and I get to the times I get to speak, I want to highlight some of these um, as well. As I like to remind people who often forget, unity is part of the umbrella we call New Thought Christianity. We are a Christian movement. Barely. And I say barely because, you know, people have described Christianity as a big tent, Right there, there's many iterations of it, and those uh, the two big tent poles in the big tent of Christianity. If you look at it historically, are like there's there's like the Catholic, aka Universal, and then there's the Protestant. Right, unity. We are like that tent flap that's fluttering in the breeze <laughs> on the outside of the big tent of Christianity. We're barely there. Right, unity is centered around the life and teachings of Jesus interpreted metaphysically, okay? And we, 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 we are like descendant from the Christian science movement. So, so we're, we're kind of in there a little bit. So I want to talk about one of uh, occurrences that happened in, in the New Testament. This is from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And as I read it, some of you might recognize this story and some of these sayings. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give your money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. 
When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard? (laughs) Meteorologist on call. (laughs) Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children in fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. That's a lot in there. There's a lot to unpack. I'm sure some of those verses rang familiar with you. For example, the one that says it's easier for the camel to go through a eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this verse has been used in different ways, and neither of them great ways. For example, it's been used for many times as, a, as an indictment of people with a lot of financial resources, right? You're rich, you must be doing something wrong. There may be some truth to that by some people, but not everyone. To be financially prosperous is not an indictment on your spirituality, your consciousness, none of those things. In fact, over time, it's come to evolve to say it is a testament of your spiritual consciousness, of your prosperity consciousness. In fact, it's, 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 it's become... Uh, almost a, a benchmark, right? And this is where it starts to take a little bit of a dark turn. Because in making it a benchmark, now what we're saying is, well, if you're not financially prosperous, what's wrong with your prosperity consciousness? And then we start to commit on others and ourselves what I'd like to call metaphysical malpractice. This verse has also been used as a justification for keeping others in poverty. You are poor, you have nothing, systems are up against your earning, and you're growing into the fullness of your potential. That's all good. Why? Because Jesus said, it's good to be poor. That's not what he said, but that's how that's been interpreted, as a way to support systems of financial oppression. So we got these verses that can be used in this way. But I don't think this is what he's saying here in any way, shape, or form. What I think what he's really saying is, what is it that we are so attached to that it does not allow us to experience the fullness of our divine experience? What is it that we are so attached to, especially internally, 
that does not allow us to experience the fullness of our divine experience, of our divine reality, of our divine essence. And sure, we could point to money and possessions, but let's be clear, money and possessions are not the problem. What, money, what the problem is, what the money and the possessions represent for us. For many of us, we use money and possessions as a way to sort of put a band-aid on some deep-seated fears that we have. Fears of safety, for example. If I have a lot of money and I live in the right neighborhood, I am safe. And safety is important to me. If I have a lot of money or enough possessions, now I feel valuable. Now I feel like I have self-worth. So we use a lot of these external trappings as substitutions for deep issues that we have not taken a look at or healed. And we know we haven't because we get the money and the trappings and we still feel the same way. And then we become afraid to lose the money and trappings because then it activates and pushes the button of that wound. For some of us, it's not money possessions, it's, in, it's about relationships, right? For some of us, we have that deep wound of abandonment. We have a deep fear of being alone. So rather than do the courageous, challenging work of investigating where that came from and healing that internally on our own, we become very attached and addicted to relationships and keeping people in our lives and staying in situations much longer than we needed to stay in them and compromising ourselves and who we are and our values in order to keep people around because that deep fear of being alone haunts us. We, we, we know there's a war raging in Ukraine right now. And what's been fascinating, I'm sure you've seen reports on this, what's been fascinating is how the response to this war has been different from other previous wars. And what's being reflected in this is what you know I like to spend a lot of time talking about, racism. The deep-seated, what we call white supremacy cultural norms. And I'll give you two examples. In the reporting for the war. It's been fascinating to watch reporters say, I can't believe this is happening here in Ukraine. We're a civilized country. We're not like the Middle East, right? The neighboring countries of the Ukraine, for example, have been doing such a marvelously amazing, compassionate job of welcoming the refugees and feeding them and giving them, like, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, permission to stay and live and work, which is good. That's what's needed when we have these unfair and unjust wards and people are displaced. Yes, you welcome them into your home. You welcome the stranger. That's the tenet of every religion and spiritual movement. Welcome the stranger, and they're doing a great job of that. They weren't doing a great job of it four, five, six years ago when those refugees were coming from the Middle East and Syria and other African nations. When the refugees had skin color that looked like mine, what did some of those countries do? They put up fences and barbed wire and refused to welcome the stranger. 
So, yeah, the war kind of showed us, really, some of those deep wounds and those deep, deep discriminations that maybe they're not even conscious that they have. Last month was Black History Month. What's this month? Women's History Month. Didn't hear a lot of men saying it loudly just now. Wonder why. <laughs> you did. Yes, Hal, you did. You did. You did. You did. It's Women's History Month. And just as we talk about uh, us living in a, in a very um, um, white supremacy, cultural, normative place, we also live in a very male patriarchy cultural-centered norm. And that means that we have taken on a lot of these, these, these beliefs about the patriarchy that we are not even aware of. I am a man and I will throw myself under the bus in this. It's been fascinating for me when I started to pay attention on these these internalized patriarchal sexist ideas and beliefs that I didn't even consciously know I had. Great example of this is when I'm driving and I'm on the beltway or any highway and somebody makes really questionable driving choice. <laughs> and my first response is, must be a woman driver? All right, must be an old person. Yeah, wow. And, I, and it like just pops up like that. I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? Internalized sexism. Internalized ageism. And I wasn't raised sexist. I wasn't, I mean, I was primarily raised by women. Strong, entrepreneurial women. Those were my role models growing up. But, the, but it's a patriarchal society. So all, those, all of those sexist patriarchal norms still found their way in. For all of us. Are we willing to take a look at what needs to be released conscious and unconsciously? Are we willing to dive deep and look at those wounds? Because a lot of times the unconscious beliefs that we've created have been placed there in order to avoid the pain that comes with looking at those deep, deep wounds that we're doing our best to pretend don't exist anymore. We want to change the circumstances of our life around us so that they don't trigger the pain inside of us. But if we don't heal what's inside of us, nothing we're going to do out there is going to matter. And we will not live a life that is fulfilled, a life that is content, or a life that is happy. And let's be clear, it's not about creating the perfect 
scenario in here. It's about practicing awareness and mindfulness. So that when I am driving and someone makes a questionable decision, to observe my thoughts. And when those thoughts pop up, go, where did those come from? Why do I believe those? Am I wanting to hold on to those for some reason? Am I willing to surrender and release any places of privilege and power that I might have based on my social location? When I use the term social location, this is what I'm talking about. It's really fine print here, but do we, does this have a laser pointer? No, I don't think so. so. We're, gonna do the, we're gonna do the weather person <laughs> thing. Notice I said weather person, not, not weatherman, okay? Practicing, practicing, being aware, weather person. So imagine that the center is the, is the place of privilege and power and access. And, and, whoa, where, whoa. I have the power. Um, so you, if you look at the, 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 the categories that are right around the, the, the center of privilege and power, let me read some of those titles for you. White, male, wealthy, heterosexual, able-bodied, U.S.-born, English-speaking, Protestant or Catholic. Because of how this country specifically has evolved, those are the people in those categories who are closest to the center of privilege and power, who have more access to it, or least obstacles to the power and privilege. So while I am a person of color, so I have no white privilege. I am male, I am straight, I speak English as my native language, I am able-bodied, and as we said, loosely Christian. So I'm walking with a lot of privilege still. Am I willing to surrender that privilege? Am I willing, let's bring the lights back up, am I willing when I'm in a room full of people and there are women in the room to sit down and shut my ass up and listen? Am I willing when I am in a space and a person who is not as able-bodied as I am tells me that they're not having the same experience that I am having, am I willing to listen and trust and believe them and then Act on it. That's what giving up the power and the privilege looks like. And if I have some inner resistance to that, I got to ask myself, why? What, is, what scares me about giving up my social location? About moving back so that others can move up? and we can level the playing field. That's what I believe this invitation that Jesus gave for the rich man to give up his possessions was really all about. And that's the invitation I'm asking you guys to consider 
especially during this time of Lent, which has traditionally been about letting things go, right? Letting things go. And we, again, we, we tend to focus on the external. Ah, going to give up chocolate for Lent. I'm going to give up beer. I'm going to give up this. I'm going to give up that as a way of maybe bringing our awareness to, 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 to addictions or, or, or mindless habits that we engage in. Sure, that's all cute. Congratulations. But the real work comes from the, the social location. The real work comes from what's inside of us that continues to get triggered. That's what we're being asked to look at, to surrender, again, to step back. He says, there's no one who has left his house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and the sake of the good news that doesn't receive a hundredfold now in this age and in the age to come. There isn't anyone who has surrendered all the things they are attached to all the things they are attached to, externally and internally, that does not receive what those attachments represented. So when we release our attachments to money as a means of safety and do the work to know that we internally, especially, are safe, wherever we are because of our divinity, then it doesn't matter if we have the money or not. But it also, it also <laughs> brings our attention back to that social location to realize that some of us aren't safe wherever we go. And what can we do to make sure that everyone is? That's when the real transformation comes about. Because again, we live from the inside out. So we have to pay attention to what needs to be released on the inside. He says, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is a question of prioritization. What are we going to prioritize in our lives? Our inner healing or the outer fixing? Because the outer fixing is just an illusion, a scapegoat, an excuse to not do the inner healing work. When we put what we want to make last, <laughs> the, true, the true difficult inner healing work, when, when, we, when we tend to make that last, but now when we put that first, we're going to have a whole different experience on the outer. What is first shall be last, and what is last shall be first. So my invitation to you this week, this month, this year, this lifetime, ask yourselves, am I willing enough and brave enough to look at those things that I am holding on to internally 
so that I can experience the fullness of God. And one of those things, ready for this, is God itself. Am I willing to even let go of God itself that I can experience the fullness of God itself? Because we've all created meanings of what God is based on what religions have told us, including unity. And we try to live and, and, and adhere to those. But anything that seeks to define that which transcends definition is limiting. It's what we in the old church days used to call idolatry. We have created God in our image. Are we even willing to let go of any image of God, even the good one, even let that go so that we can truly begin to experience the fullness of what it is? That's a big invitation. So take it in baby steps. Don't go have a whole like deconstructive crisis of faith this afternoon. Or do. I mean, I'm not telling you what to do. <laughs> if you do and you run into shock, just like, you know, give me a call and I'll, I'll help you walk through it. I've had, I've had two. I might be in the middle of a third. I don't know quite yet. But I like to say to folks, if you've not had at least two good crises of faith in your lifetime. You're not doing this right. Because that means you're holding on in a place of certainty. And you know what is the opposite of certainty? Faith. The opposite of certainty is faith. So have faith that as you continue to release all that stands in your way within you, you will experience the fullness of all that is and who you are called to be. Let's take this into meditation. So again, if you're comfortable, plant both feet on the floor, gently close the eyes or leave them open, but I invite you to connect with the breath. Taking a deep breath in and out, allowing the breath center and settle you in this moment amidst the swirling thoughts and, and sensations in the body that have arisen from what you've just heard just let them be and turn your attention to the breath Follow the inflow and outflow of air. Noticing the moments of stillness between the inhale and the exhale. And for this moment, let us begin by declaring a willingness to be open 
to seeing what needs to be released. Because it starts with a willingness. It starts with an openness. And noticing what fears might begin to arise as we contemplate letting go. what we may believe to be true. Letting go all that stands between us and the courageous challenge and work of our deepest wounded self. having faith that as we traverse this uncertain journey, we already are and already have all we need to be on the other side, heal, whole, and at peace. serves both in the conscious and the unconscious and stand in that affirmation grounded for a few moments in the silence I am willing and I am open to release what no longer serves in the conscious and the unconscious I am willing and I am open to release that which no longer serves 
both in the conscious and the unconscious. And I welcome in the fullness of all that is and all that I am. And so it is. So we let it be.